from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Robert Atkinson on July 24, 2017. Bob is an internationally recognized authority on life story interviewing, personal myth-making, and soul-making, and is Professor Emeritus of Cross-Cultural Human Development and Religious Studies at the University of Southern Maine and Director of Story Commons. His nine books include Mystic Journey, Getting to the Heart of Your Soul Story, which is called by Gene Houston, quote, an exquisite exploration of the spiritual craft of soul-making, unquote. After his B.A. from Southampton College of Long Island University and an M.A. in American folk culture from SUNY Cooperstown, his journeys took him to the Hudson River, where he was a crew member on the maiden voyage of the sloop Clearwater with Pete Seeger. Next was Woodstock, then a stay in a cabin in the woods near the river, a visit with Ramblin' Jack Elliott to Arlo Guthrie's farm in the Berkshires, a fateful meeting with Joseph Campbell, an extended stay in a Franciscan monastery, and finally he returned to Southampton College to teach a course on folk rock lyrics as poetry. The full details of all of this and more can be found in his memoir, Remembering 1969, Searching for the Eternal in Changing Times, of which... Thomas More said it was, quote, profound, friendly, inspiring, and nostalgic. I loved it, unquote. His first book, Songs of the Open Road, The Poetry of Folk Rock, and The Journey of the Hero, was a result of that first college course he taught. His second master's degree is from the University of New Hampshire in counseling, and his Ph.D. is from the University of Pennsylvania in cross-cultural human development. He also completed a postdoctoral research fellowship at the University of Chicago, which resulted in the publication of The Teenage World, co-authored with his mentors. At the University of Southern Maine, he was the first diversity scholar in the College of Education and Human Development, a co-founding faculty of the Russell Scholars Program and co-founding faculty of the Religious Studies Minor, as well as a faculty member on the fall 2002 semester at Sea Voyage Around the World. He also wrote The Gift of Stories, Practical and Spiritual Applications of Autobiography, Life Stories, and Personal Myth-Making, that has been translated into Japanese. And he also wrote The Life Story Interview, Qualitative Research Methods, that has been translated into Italian and Romanian. His latest book is The Story of Our Time, From Duality to Interconnectedness to Oneness, We talk about this book in the interview. You can find him online at www.robertatkinson.net. I started the interview by asking Robert where he grew up and what was his religious life growing up. I grew up in uh, eastern Long Island, New York, out in what used to be the potato fields of eastern Long Island. It was interesting. We moved to that 
town that I grew up in when I was about five years old. And my parents, they were Christian and, and there were lots of Christian churches to choose from. So I ended up uh, attending and, and kind of growing up in the uh, congregational church there in town. And, uh, and that was good. There was a lot of activities and um, I did some of the usual Sunday school class things as a child growing up and then later as a Boy Scout did uh, God and Country Award through the church. I was interested in all of that, but in a, what I guess I would think of as a, in a childhood way because of that, that's all I had at that point. But uh, any other thing that was really pretty influential in my childhood was my grandmother came to live with us about a couple of months out of the year for a few years while she was with us. I mean, I was probably around nine years old then, and um, my grandmother was very religious. I would often observe her in her room. She left the door open and I knew what she was doing, but she had a regular daily practice of retreating to a room to read the Bible in the upper room. As a young child, I was really intrigued by that, and, and just it, it made me wonder what that was all about. Without really realizing it at that point, that really stuck with me. Her her devotion and her commitment to her own spiritual practice, as it was back then in the uh, in the 1950s. All of those kinds of experiences as a child um, really planted a seed of some kind in me as a child that didn't really come out to uh, bloom or whatever until I got uh, into college and even beyond that. Did you continue that religious practice as you left home and went to college? Yeah, but in a different way. It kind of expanded and shifted in college. I ended up majoring in philosophy. So I became really interested in um, in the world's philosophers from uh, ancient philosophy to modern. And along with that, I became even more interested in the study of the world's religions. And so that was really where I started studying on my own, the world's religions, which included reading as much of the sacred texts as I could and, and other books about the world's religions. And that kind of um, set me out on my own quest for a much broader religious and spiritual understanding than I had as a child. And can you describe your journey that eventually led you to becoming a Baha'i? So after college, I did get a master's degree that was in American folk culture. That was another kind of expansion to my formal and independent study of religion and mythology and folklore, folk life. During that year of studying at the Cooperstown graduate program in New York, I did my master's thesis, a life story interview with a Catskill Mountain farmer, singer, who happened to um, know quite well Pete Seeger. And I was really fortunate to meet Pete, and he helped me a little bit on the uh, thesis with my interview. At the time, he mentioned, Pete Seeger mentioned to me that he was raising money to build a replica of an old Hudson River sloop to uh, sail the Hudson again and to raise awareness of the pollution of the river, as well as recreate some of the history of it. So a year passed, 
And I um, was a counselor at a summer camp in eastern Long Island. And I read the headlines in the local paper one day saying that the sloop Clearwater was sailing into Port Jeff Harbor. And and that reminded me of my conversation with Peter Year before that. And so I went over to Port Jeff and met him and we picked up where we left off. And he invited me to sail with him on the um, maiden voyage of the Clearwater from New York to Albany. And that was really the beginning of a whole series of experiences that opened me up to a lot more direct experiences, as well as a continuation of my independent study of of mythology and folklore and the world's religions. This was all happening in the summer of 1969. So the weekend that we got to Albany happened to be the weekend of Woodstock. The captain of the sloop was an old friend of David Crosby. So he said he was going over to see his friend David and wondered if anybody wanted to come along with him. So I and a couple of others on this sloop went over and attended Woodstock. And that expanded my experience as well, just in terms of the uh, immediate kind of makeshift community of humanity that were there. But then that fall, I got a cabin in the woods and near the river and studied the writings of the sacred traditions, learned as much as I could from nature around the cabin. To take one step back, one of the other key experiences that summer on the maiden voyage on the Clearwater from New York to Albany, we stopped in little river towns along the way. I'm not sure now which town it was. It might have been Beacon or one of those towns where we stopped for a sloop festival I was walking around, there was a lot of booths and everybody had little tables set up for things. And one of the tables that I passed by had some pamphlets on it. I picked one up, it was a pamphlet on the Baha'i faith. It was the kind of thing where I I knew I was interested and wanted to learn more about it, but I kind of stuck it away for a while. It ended up becoming a bookmark for me for a while. Every once in a while when I would read that book, there was the pamphlet as a bookmark and I read more. And so that started to make complete sense to me in terms of the uh, study of the world's religions that I was doing at the time. I couldn't stay in the cabin, so I ended up being given a uh, cell in a nearby Franciscan monastery as a guest. And I thought it was going to be maybe for a few nights while I was in between places, but That ended up being a a nine-month stay in the Franciscan monastery. So I got to experience what life was like for the friars who were living all around me. And I could hear their chanting from my cell or wherever I was in the monastery. And it was just a really powerful experience that broadened my own experience out even further. But I continued to... um, study on my own. And I was always reading people like Easton Smith and the world's religions. One day I decided to go down to New York City. I was noticing a book in the 8th Street bookshop window and I went inside, got the book and picked it up and started reading this particular book. And then after I was reading that for a few moments, I looked up at the bulletin board right in front of me and there was a, an announcement for a talk being given that evening a few blocks away in Cooper Union by Joseph Campbell, whose book I was reading at that time. That's my chance to uh, meet the author whose book I was reading. I didn't think one second about it. I knew I 
I had to walk over there just the right time. I got there in this huge hall, sat down in one of the front rows. The place filled up all around me, and they began to speak as if I was the only person in this huge hall, because what he was talking about was how the the mythological journey of the hero is similar to certain psychological patterns or processes. And, and he made it really clear as well what the differences were. But when he was describing the uh, motifs and the archetypes of the mythological journey of the hero, I was really very closely identifying with all of it from my own experience. At that point, I was kind of in the, the initiation phase uh, without knowing where I would be going from there to get to the return phase, which was the next big archetype. Without going into a lot of the details, I met him afterwards, and this was in 1970, before he became pretty famous from his um, Bill Moyers interviews. Uh, I told him how much what he had to say meant to me, and he just really kind of welcomed me and, and actually invited me to his home to talk further. And so on one of my visits to his home in Greenwich Village, he gave me a book called The Mass of God, Creative Mythology. And in that book, he wrote as a foreword, which I read later, he said that it was a final volume in a four-volume series. He wrote that the series confirmed for him, I'll just quote, a thought I have long and faithfully entertained of the unity of the human race, not only in its biology, but also in its spiritual history, which has everywhere unfolded in a manner of a single symphony with its themes irresistibly advancing to some kind of mighty climax. At that moment, when I read that, I kind of knew where and how and why my worldview was unfolding and, and expanding the way it was, because that was the thought that I had kind of picked up through my own experiences and, and the readings in the world's religions. Uh, I, that, that whole concept of the unity of the human race was where my spiritual quest had led me. And, and his confirmation of that was so powerful and really became the basis for my expanding worldview from that point on. After I had picked up that brochure at one of the sloop festivals the summer before, it was actually a couple of years later that I seriously, including the Baha'i faith in my investigation of the world's religions, but, but as soon as I did, everything that I had kind of come to through my own experiences and through other people like, like Joseph Campbell and Houston Smith and others, uh, where it was totally confirmed and made so much clearer by the Baha'i writings, the Baha'i teachings, uh, especially statements from Baha'u'llah, the, the founder of the Baha'i faith, uh, statements like, the earth is one country and mankind its citizens. Actually, my first Baha'i book that I read was The Seven Valleys. And this was the result of a suggestion from a Baha'i that I was living in the same community with because I had told him that I was um, interested in the world's religions and especially mysticism and because that's Baha'u'llah's um, expression of the uh, universal and timeless journey of the soul. Everything made total sense from the personal deepest mystic level to the grandest global scale level. 
for me when I finally did get to um, delve into the Baha'i teaching. So it became really clear to me that that was what all of my experiences had been leading me to. You know, everything just kind of fell into place after that. Once I began that serious, uh, committed investigation of the Baha'i teachings, perfectly fit with everything that, that led me to it. And so then I guess you, at that point, became a Baha'i? Yeah, I sure did. And how long have you been a Baha'i now? Well, that, that would have been the um, early 70s. You've recently published a book called The Story of Our Time. I'm wondering if you could tell us the inspiration behind writing this book. One of the um, inspirations that I could point to for this book was uh, meeting Joseph Campbell, having him give me the book, which had his statement about unity of the human race in it. So that was 40-some years ago, and that was a clearly a seed been planted that stayed within me as a seed. After a second master's degree in counseling, then I went on to complete my doctorate work in cross-cultural human development at the University of Pennsylvania. And then I did a two-year postdoc at the University of Chicago. And then from there, I went to start my academic career at the University of Southern Maine. And so all of that while, and even after I had begun my academic career teaching mostly cross-cultural human development courses for the counselor education program, I, I was writing other things, mostly about life story interview methodology. And those, once in a while, I would sneak in an article or something about spiritual development, but that was really my underlying deepest interest. And so it took to the end of my academic career to bring that thread more to the surface of what I was writing more about. And so my book prior to this one was called Mystic Journey, Getting to the Heart of Your Soul Story. That was a matter of extending and expanding a life story interview approach from birth to death to a more of an eternal perspective, looking at it as a soul's journey from conception through beyond death. And then all the while I had actually been working on very earlier drafts of this book. And one of the other pieces that was really an inspiration happened when I was um, attending and presenting at a conference. The conference was actually at Hebrew University in, in Jerusalem couple of us that went to that uh, had time and so we had a couple of extra days so we took a uh, short visit to Haifa to visit the Baha'i Shrines and, and the World Center and one of the um, key experiences there was um, one of the other presenters that I was with Michael Penn who was also a Baha'i professor at Franklin Marshall in Pennsylvania he and I had the opportunity to meet with Hooper Dunbar, who was a member of the Universal House of Justice at the time, the governing body for the Baha'i Faith. At that meeting with Hooper Dunbar, he gave both of us a uh, typed out version of a compilation that he had been using uh, in his work, in his research, that was called Forces of Our Time, and later became a book but that typed compilation 
provided so much depth and detail into the kind of approach that I was looking for this book. And so again, that was um, 17 years ago that became a core part of a number of the uh, chapters in this book. So the other ongoing long time underlying interest of mine has been um, kind of looking at humanity's conscious evolution, primarily through the um, evolution of religion itself. One of the approaches that I take in the book is looking at human history from the perspective of spiritual epochs. I'm looking at spiritual epics in the uh, grandest sense, thinking of the um, prophet founders of each of the world's major religions. So one of the things I also provide in the book is a timeline of humanity's conscious evolution. And of course, if we go back to prehistory, we have the indigenous and ancient spiritual traditions era. All of the uh, indigenous communities and Native tribes all had their own um, spiritual teachers, including shamans. Their tribal histories were preserved in the teachings that all focused on harmony, balance, and oneness. And then moving on from there, we can go on to the uh, to identify the epics uh, with the um, prophet founders. So we have the Hebrew-Judaic era, and then the um, Vedic-Hindu era, and the Zoroastrian era, and the Buddhist era, and the Christian era, and the Islamic era, and most recently, the Baha'i era, which began in the 1840s, 50s, with the Bab, who was the forerunner of Baha'u'llah, and then with Baha'u'llah in the 1850s, with, his, with the beginning of his teachings, which went on through to the 1890s. And that's really why I, um, big reason for choosing the title that I did, uh, Our Time doesn't refer just to this year or even this century. It refers to our time in terms of the spiritual epic we're in right now. Considering that all of those spiritual epics that I quickly ran through just then, that they can range, each one of those can last anywhere from five or six centuries to 10 or 12 centuries. We're only about a century and three quarters into the most recent spiritual epic. And the thing about each of those spiritual epics and, and putting it into a timeline like this and the things that characterize each of those eras, we can clearly see that there has been a leap of consciousness with the beginning and the unfolding of each of those eras throughout history. You can look at each one individually. Any historian, a cultural historian, a religious historian would tell you that from 622 on, which was the beginning of the Islamic era, there was a, a huge increase of arts and sciences. And then similarly, if we look at the 1850s, you know, the mid-19th century, we can see so many ways in which the world itself has leapt into a whole new world of travel and communication, scientific discoveries, technology. So the title is really about the story of our time that we're only 
relatively still in the uh, spiritual springtime of this era that we've just begun since the mid-19th century. So the book is built around a foundation of seven unifying principles that I kind of pull together from the world's religions as timeless, universal principles that are really designed and meant to lead us to a consciousness of oneness. So again, with the primary teaching of Baha'u'llah and the Baha'i faith being the oneness of humanity for this time that we're living in now, um, everything else is kind of reflecting that from the scientists to literary people to all, all the other um, social sciences. Even Charles Darwin, who was a contemporary of Baha'u'llah in the late 1850s, Darwin wrote The Origin of Species, which made not only the discussion of biological evolution public, but the awareness of evolution itself. Now we understand that everything evolves, not only science, not only history, but even religion. But Darwin's work is kind of misunderstood in a way because he really opened the door to all other forms of evolution from social to cultural to religious evolution. And he also opened the door to understanding the harmony of science and religion by making it scientifically accepted that all life comes from the same source and is part of the same great tree of life. When we put the two together, put normally think of as human history or, or the history of any other knowledge system like science together with an understanding of how religion itself evolves, we can see connections that might not have been noticed otherwise, like the connection between how the release of the spiritual energies that occurred in the, that began in the 1850s were spread throughout the world and impacted other individuals, including people like Charles Darwin. I think it's really helpful to, and this is what the book does as well, it really takes a big picture perspective on the evolution of humanity's consciousness. There had been a lot, really long period of time in our history, pretty much after the original indigenous peoples, after groups started splitting up and moving around and spreading out and populating the entire globe, that was when groups started coming into contact with each other that known each other before and that created conflicts and problems and you know, all kinds of things that led to um, difficulties and even wars, you know. And so that brought with it a whole shift in consciousness from our original consciousness of oneness that the indigenous peoples were born with, came into this world with. After the world became populated, we adopted something that wasn't really part of, of our original gift, from the creator, we adopted a consciousness of duality because we didn't really have a choice with the, uh, all the conflicts and difficulties and wars that were happening. We ended up living with that consciousness of duality for centuries, even, even a few millennia until now. 
with the latest revelation from Baha'u'llah and Baha'i teachings and a lot of other people around the world who may or may not even be aware of directly or specifically the teachings of Baha'u'llah about the oneness of humanity. I think it's a concept that has come of time and out of necessity, really, because if we don't start to recognize that we are one human family and begin to live as one human family on this precious planet that we inhabit, it may be too late to sustain the other way of life that we've somehow been able to manage to survive with. But now there's so many world religions as well as new secular organizations coming into being that are recognizing the same truth, the crucialness of living by a consciousness of oneness and the reality that all things are interconnected, which is really kind of taking us back to the original indigenous teachings along those lines. But now we have the latest prophet in a long line of, of those who have been the creators of the major world religions, who is telling us that as a human family, we've come of age, it's time for our collective maturity to come into being. And the only way that's going to happen is to reclaim our original consciousness of oneness and really to start building a culture of oneness. There's a chapter for each of the seven principles in the book that lead us along that path and show how reality is one and how um, revelation is continuous and progressive and how consciousness itself evolves toward wholeness and unity. So now with the um, teachings of the latest prophet from the mid-19th century, Baha'u'llah, we have a whole blueprint for putting into practice how to live with a consciousness of oneness and build a culture of oneness. Would you be willing to read an excerpt from your book? Yeah, sure. Let's see. I gave a, a really big overview of the uh, book. I guess I can read a few paragraphs here. What I would think of as um, kind of the message that everyone needs to be aware of to move forward. I mean, obviously, we are living through a period of uh, troubled times. The middle of the seven principles, the fourth principle, is actually about opposition as the catalyst for transformation. And that's something I think that everybody uh, is interested in knowing a little bit more about. And so in that chapter, I go into the details of the ageless pattern of transformation, which I talked a little bit about before from my work with Joseph Campbell. But the center of that process of transformation includes what we might think of now as the uh, dark night of the collective soul. And that's where we are. But that middle chapter describes how unity is the result of the conscious confrontation of opposing forces. So we're going to get through this muddle phase that we're in now because all muddles are meant to lead to a resolution. And in order for us to get to that resolution, that is 
really a part of all the world's religions. I'll just um, start with a quote on that point. We live in the day of fulfillment. This is the time when the way is being made ready for a new world, for the coming together of all the diverse peoples into one family, as in the sacred texts of old, one fold and one shepherd from John, or the promised day from the Quran. The new creation is today everywhere evident, unfolding with a force subtle yet certain, just as a seedling in time becomes a fruit-bearing tree or a child reaches adulthood, we are at the threshold never before crossed. Our collective coming of age as a single people is at hand. The most important work today, the action needed to be taken by each of us, is work across boundaries, across differences. Any step that can be taken in our regular everyday interactions toward anyone different in any way than us is to remove the barriers that have been put up between us by others. Joining hands across differences is the sacred activism of our time. Bob, where can people find your book? Yeah, well, first, they might want to find out a little bit more about it. And there's a lot of information on my website about the book, including some uh, excerpts, some essays that have been published in other places. So my website is www.robertatkinson.net. They can just go there and click on the uh, cover photo, and that'll take them right to Amazon, where they can get the book. Or they can go directly to Amazon if they want to take a shortcut. Well, Bob, I want to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us, and especially your work, The Story of Our Time, from duality to interconnectedness to oneness. Robert Atkinson, thank you again. Thanks, Warren. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Robert Atkinson, recognized authority on life story interviewing, personal myth-making, and soul-making, and is Professor Emeritus of Cross-Cultural Human Development and Religious Studies at the University of Southern Maine. His latest book is The Story of Our Time, From Duality to Interconnectedness to Oneness. He is online at www.robertatkinson.net. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you join me next time on a Baha'i perspective. storm, all is quiet. Here I am all alone. I see you through the plexiglass, reaching and leading me home. 
What do you want? She said. To know in my heart that God loves me. <laughs> Can't you pick something less daunting? He said, "Love me that I may love thee. Love me that I may love thee. If thou lovest me not, my love can in no wise reach thee. If thou lovest me not, my love can in no wise reach thee." Probably should be angry with you. I know I should be angry with you. Probably should be angry with you. But I see me in you. Hand of God or hand of man. Love of God or love of you. My heart needs glasses. It's gotten them confused. He said, "Love me that I may love. Love me that I may love thee. If thou lovest me not, my love can in no wise reach thee." Thou lovest me not, my love can in no wise reach thee. Oh God, forgive me. He said, Turn thy sight unto thyself. Turn thy sight unto thyself, that thou mayest find me standing within thee. Oh. Huh? 
garden of thy heart plant not but the rose of love and from the to 
an optimist When it's more fashionable to be a pessimist From what's in 75% of what we read here in view Well, I used to have a friend named Minnie Ripperton Who used to always sing when she was living Like fine wine and like seeing the glass of life is half full and half empty I'm not saying sometimes life can be rough But never to the point of me saying I've had enough Long as my heart beats, I'm giving up That's why I say every day, yeah American, what do I see for tomorrow in the human plan? Is it possible for all people of the world to coexist? I say unity is only as big as our vision, and if it's now strive to expand beyond the horizon, but truly there's much guidance through the ills of society that stand in our way. So if the road is to harmony, be with the call. But if it's about discord, don't take the ride at all. Cause the world vision I see is the one we for everybody.
Be calm, be calm, be strong, be strong, be grateful. Be calm, be calm, be strong, be strong, be grateful. Be calm, be calm, be strong, be strong, be grateful, and be calm. Be calm. Become a lamp full of light, full of light, and become a lamp full of light, and be a lamp full of light, full of light. Be a lamp become, of light. Be strong. Be a lamp be of light, and be a lamp full of light. Full of light, be a lamp of light. Be strong, be a lamp of light, and be a lamp full of light. Full of light, be a lamp of light. Be strong, be a lamp of light, and be a lamp full of light. Full of light, be a lamp of light. Be a lamp of light and become a lamp. Become a lamp full of light. Full of light. Full of light. Become. Be strong.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.